0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. Our Pearl Harbor moment to start warning about this coming week from the US Surgeon General. Hitting the peak, hopes rise that some cases have peaked in the EU nations. And an oil deal drama, the US president talks tariffs as OPEC nations delay today's call. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the world. I hope you managed to get... rest this weekend as you heard there the U.S. Surgeon General suggested that this could be the hardest week yet in the United States but I do believe Queen Elizabeth giving her speech yesterday in the UK said it best she said while we may have more to endure she said better days will return and we will meet again let's hope that's true All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures at this moment. We will meet again, but we do meet first on Wall Street, a higher Wall Street Open, a bounce after last week's 2% losses. There's still a sense of uh, cautious optimism, I think, as I mentioned there, as data suggests, a levelling off in cases across Europe, including Spain, Italy and Germany. We'll get a sense of whether that glimmer of light is uh, is true at this moment. But uh, for now, European major markets are all higher, taking, I think, a bit of that optimism there. In Asia, Chinese markets were closed for a holiday. Japan, though, managed to rise some 4%. A few hours ago, the Japanese government announced a massive $1 trillion emergency stimulus plan representing some 20% of Japan's growth. More detail in a moment but we continue to watch the oil markets too of course prices are lower after opec delayed their meeting to discuss production cuts it's been rescheduled for thursday despite the better tone of course i remain cautious here i have to say we have to understand the economic damage that's been wrought. what it's ultimately going to take to restart some of these economies to wake them up after this self-induced sleep It's a tough one. We will continue to talk about this, no doubt. Let's get to the drivers here first, because I do want to talk to you about what we're seeing in terms of cases. Not only that this is expected to be the hardest week, of course, for the United States, according to the U.S. Secretary General, but also whether or not we can take what we're seeing in Europe as a sign of optimism. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Dr. Sanjay Can you talk us through and great to have you with us first, what we're expecting to see here in the United States, but also whether we can be in any way confident about what certain data is telling us about whether on a daily basis, cases have reached a plateau or a peak in certain nations in Europe.
1: Well, probably, uh, you know, Julia, much, much like your world, it, it is always subject to change. And, you know, any of the models that people are looking at are, are, are only as good as the assumptions that you're putting into those models. And those assumptions change on a daily basis as well. The two biggest ones being uh, just how, you know, diligent is any particular part of the country or part of the world, frankly, being about actually distancing themselves from other people, because that is how the virus spreads, I think, as most people probably know by now, but also just how how much capacity do we have to take care of patients? You know, Julia, the, the virus is obviously a bad virus, but when you see some of these death rates being so different in some countries versus others, a big reason for that is that the, the hospitals, you know, became overwhelmed in those places, and, the, and that drove up the death rate. So those two things uh, are continuously going to inform, you know, what is happening here. I think we are likely to see in many places in the United States, uh, New York City and New York being one of the biggest ones, obviously people are paying attention to, these peaks uh, within this next few weeks, some say even within the next few days. By the way, Julia, the timeline is back up on the screen here, which I think is always important to remind people of. This hasn't been that long that we've been going through this, Um, January 21st is when the United States reported their first confirmed case that was not even a month after China started to investigate this pneumonia outbreak, but it was February 26th where we had the first U.S. case of unknown origin and I think that that was really what I think um, really got a lot of people's attention because that meant for the first time there was evidence that this was spreading in the community person to person likely and that you know was very different I think than um, uh, what we had seen in recent past with with regard to these outbreaks Julia.
0: Yeah it's such a challenge isn't it and I think We're looking at what's happened in China. We're now looking at what we hope, to your point, we have to be very cautious about what we're seeing in Europe too. How do you start to reopen and get people back to work and at least reducing some of the lockdown measures that we're seeing without risking, to your point, seeing a pickup in cases again and and concerns that the spread continues?
1: Yeah, no, you know, what I'm optimistic about in in that regard, Julia, is is the fact that these these antibody tests, which you probably, I know you've heard about them, many of your viewers have heard about them. Basically, it's a test that determines whether or not you have antibodies, which are the body's fighting cells against the virus. It means two things. It means that you were probably exposed to the virus and you've recovered. You know, a lot of people don't know because a lot of people have minimal symptoms or no symptoms. Was that the coronavirus? I'm not even sure you get the test and then you know. But the other part of it, to to your question, Julia, is that that also means that you should be relatively inoculated or immunized against this virus for some time. We don't know how long, that's what some f- further studies are going to tell us, but if you've been exposed and recovered, you should be, re- you should be uh, essentially immunized for some time. I think from a scientific perspective, those people uh, who have this immunity, being able to go back to work with a little bit more confidence, I think, than others is going to make a lot of sense. You know, you might imagine, even when we do get the all-clear flag, if, if you don't, and there won't be a distinct all-clear flag, but when we're told you can start going back to work, for a lot of people, I mean, you know, Julia, they, they might still be a little frightened. Do, yeah. do I push that elevator button door? Do I touch the door handle? How close do I get to people? It's not going to be a distinct moment in time, but I do think this antibody test is going to add, add a lot of confidence for some people in terms of what they can do.
0: Yeah, not just about the science, to your point, it's about the psychology here too. A lot of hopes being placed in this uh, antibody test as well. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, Americans are eagerly awaiting their government paychecks due to the economic fallout of these uh, suppression measures. A fierce bipartisan debate is underway about a next wave of stimulus. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, that would be stimulus number four, I believe. The president has been talking about perhaps some kind of infrastructure plan to get people back to work. The Democrats are simply saying, look, states need more money. The healthcare sector needs more money. People need more money, too.
2: Yeah, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Friday night said essentially, uh, that $2 trillion bailout package for Main Street, it's not enough money. And she'd like to take that blueprint that had bipartisan support, she said, and just do it, do it again to a different degree. Uh, and the president saying infrastructure, maybe he would like to do it a different way, but he's all for sending money to people and to small businesses as well. And we've been getting uh, on the small business front. We've been getting the signals loud and clear from Washington that don't worry about this first come, first served in the, in the small business bailout, the $350 billion plus, uh, that more money will come if it is needed for small business. So I feel there is a a wind, a tailwind here uh, for more stimulus, for the money to keep flowing. When you look at those jobs numbers and what's happening in the American economy, Julia, I mean, that is a a flashing red light. And so uh, the money will probably keep
0: flowing. Yeah, and you and I have long debated the economic crisis versus the health crisis and somehow trying to, to balance the two things. Actually, what Dr. Sanjay Gupta was sort of hinting at there as well. Talk to me about the loans, because you and I have been doing all sorts of investigative work about the challenges simply of signing off on these loans and getting the money out to, to small businesses in particular. Well, what I'm hearing from
2: small business owners, and and to be fair, I mean, there are so many different kinds of small businesses with so many kinds of different kinds of priorities. Right. But among the small business owners I've been talking to, they're really weighing whether they should put their employees, push them into the unemployment insurance uh, uh, market, because those are such um, such more lucrative. I don't want to say lucrative. That's not the right word. But there's more money in those benefits. Right. And they're just not sure what the world's going to look like in another two months and whether they're going to be able to make it through. So. Using those loans for their operating costs, but not with employees. And it's so interesting, I think, too, because what I keep hearing is that they don't know what the reopen plan is. There isn't a plan for reopen. And what they would like to hear is do we have testing, do we have monitoring, do we have surveillance, do we have therapeutics? Do we have a vaccine date that we know when that is? And then how do we start to have a rolling reopening of the American economy? I think they would have more confidence, at least the people that I've talked to, if they could see what that roadmap looks like. We've never shut off the economy before, though, so there is there isn't, you know, past uh, history here to try to, to tell us what to do. But they would like to have more clarity on what the future looks like.
0: Yeah, it's such a great point. If you're going to be forgiven payrolls for the next two months, but your workers would be better off taking unemployment benefits for the next four months, what does that decision look like, particularly when on That's a relative right. basis it's, it's cheap money, perhaps the cheapest money they'll, they'll ever get? One percent. Hmm. Christine? Thank you so much for that, Thanks Christine for Romans. Japan's government, meanwhile, entered this week with all guns blazing in the battle to overcome the economic damage from the coronavirus outbreak. They've unveiled an almost $1 trillion stimulus package. The Prime Minister also announced plans for a sweeping state of emergency. Well, Ripley is in Tokyo. Well, let's talk about the stimulus package and then we'll talk about what the emergency measures will look like. This is far more money than was being rumoured last year from the government. It looks like they're not taking any chances here to try and support the economy.
3: It's unprecedented, Mm. Julia. Uh, A fifth of Japan's GDP. And this is money that is going to go to a lot of different stakeholders that really need it here in Japan because just like everywhere else in the world, coronavirus is devastating the economy. So there will be cash handouts for struggling families and also for small business owners. There will also be Breaks for cash strapped corporations in the form of delays to when their taxes are due, and also loans offered as well to try to keep employees on the payroll. So these are real life issues that are being addressed. What isn't being addressed, Julia, are some of the struggles that hospitals are facing. There is a severe shortage of ICU beds. For example, in Japan, they have seven ICU beds for every 100,000 people. That's one fifth of the United States, which has 35 beds for every 100,000. And even worse, in this country, country that claims to be a world leader in manufacturing, they have a shortage of ventilators. They have just 22,000 ventilators for a country with a population of nearly 126 million, 22,000. And as of a month ago, around 40 percent of them were already in use. That leaves 13,000 and change ventilators available as the number of infections in here in Tokyo and also other major cities like Osaka continues to skyrocket.
0: Seven beds per 100,000 members of the population in intensive care units. Uh, wow. Well, it un- you understand when you hear those numbers why they're saying, look, we have to have at least a month's lockdown here. I assume just to try and keep the cases down and buy themselves time to to boost capacity here and prepare the health sector.
3: Shinzo Abe said in his address this evening to reporters and he'll release more details on Tuesday, Julia, that a lockdown isn't going to look like lockdowns in the US or in Europe. There aren't going to be police making sure that people stay off the streets. In fact, Public transportation is still operating, uh, businesses will stay open like supermarkets for example. Shinzo Abe is saying that basic economic activity will continue. He's really trying to balance you know, the health of the economy with public health and it is a difficult balancing act but there are serious questions about whether these measures are going to go far enough in places like Tokyo which has seen the daily infection rate more than triple in just one week.
0: Wow. Well, great to have you with us to update us and we'll speak to you tomorrow as well once we get the details of that. Well, Rippy, thank you so much for that. Now to the oil market. The Kremlin says more countries should join Russia and OPEC in coordinating oil supply cuts. The two sides were meant to speak today, but that's now expected on Thursday. The comments come after President Trump threatened tariffs on foreign oil producers. John Defteris is with us to untangle all the threads here, John. A delay in this OPEC-OPEC Plus meeting. Are we really any closer as a result of the weekend to, to reaching a deal?
4: Well, What a weekend indeed, uh, Julia. We had uh, the Russians and the Saudis accusing each other of starting the price war. Uh, Donald Trump weighed in on Saturday night. But I find it very fascinating that come Monday morning, the noise got turned down and it's back to business. The head of the sovereign fund in Russia was suggesting that, and he's a negotiator, they're very, very close to a deal with Saudi Arabia. Uh, The spokesman for President Putin was suggesting They have no plans to speak to the Saudi leadership before Thursday. They can if they needed to, uh, but This is a very key point. They want greater participation from countries that have not been involved in OPEC plus before to cut their production. The UAE minister, Suhail al mazrui was saying the same thing, was very direct about it and said it has to be a joint combined effort. Now back to Donald Trump, which I thought was uh, interesting to watch when he did his briefing on Saturday night, uh, was suggesting that it is OPEC plus that needs to come up with a deal. If they don't, he'll put tariffs on imports of Saudi and Russian crude. Then you have to wonder about all this noise we're hearing about perhaps a deal with Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. If Russia does indeed deliver this deal, do they get sanctions relief going forward? That's a lot of the chatter around the discussions here leading up to Thursday.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Everyone's got some leverage or not, depending on how you choose to look at it. John Defteris, going to be a fascinating meeting. Thank you for that. The UK Prime Minister is in hospital after being admitted Sunday with persistent coronavirus symptoms. Boris Johnson tested positive for the virus 10 days ago and continues to suffer from symptoms, including a fever. Downing Street said the hospital's stay was a precautionary step to facilitate further testing. Prime Minister Johnson remains in charge of the UK government. We're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up, how real is the US president's threat of tariffs on oil imports? We'll ask the CEO of a US Energy Association who just met with the president. And avoiding economic depression. An economics Nobel laureate and a doctor behind the Ebola response in West Africa discuss when we might be able to safely go back to work. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York. Let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures still pointing to a higher open, a strong open this morning. News that deaths and new infections appear to be levelling off in parts of Europe. I think are feeding into broader sentiment here. Stimulus news, of course, I mentioned it from Japan, but also chatter in the United States perhaps helping too. But also some sobering words today from J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. He says bank earnings are set to drop meaningfully this year. Year. He's not ruling out suspending his company's dividend too. Most airline stocks are set to bounce after suffering double-digit losses last week. Delta announced late Friday that its second quarter revenue could fall some 90%. Warren Buffett also cutting his stake in Delta and Southwest apparently too. Let's take a look at what's going on in oil. We were listening to a JD giving his analysis earlier. Prices are down although they've stabilised from steeper losses earlier on in the session. Investors As we mentioned, having a slew of news to consider. Sources telling CNN OPEC's meeting with Russia and other producers won't happen until Thursday this week. Later reports suggested a deal is still possible and offered some reassurance. However, there's also a lingering threat. Potentially from the U.S. president who said he might slap U.S. or might slap tariffs on foreign oil to protect domestic producers. Mike Summers is the CEO of the American Petroleum Institute and he met with President Trump on Friday, joining us now via Skype. Sir, great to have you with us on the show. Wow. There's a lot to discuss in this space. Let's deal with the last point there first. Would in any way tariffs on foreign oil imports into the United States help the situation at this moment and those that you represent?
5: Thank you very much for having me. I, you know, we are an organization that does not support uh, tariffs mm. on foreign oil coming into the United States. We don't think that would be good for American consumers. And ultimately, the real people that would be affected by that are the people that refine our oil products. So there's a lot of value that is created by American refiners that take oil oil from all over the world and turn it into the products that we use on a daily basis, whether it's petrochemicals, uh, gasoline, or some of the household products that we have uh, in our own homes. So we don't think that's a great idea, but we certainly understand that the president is trying to do everything he can to help American producers. So we appreciate the Fact that he is uh, involved in this and negotiating with uh, MBS and uh, Putin on the way forward in these markets.
0: There's a supply situation here in story, and there's also a demand story which we'll come to. But on the supply side, the message seems to be from the big players like Saudi Arabia, like Russia. Um, we're not going to do these cuts alone. Other big producers like the United States, like Canada, perhaps like Norway all have to take part here in shoring up prices and restricting supply. Do you agree with that? Should the United States also play its role?
5: Let's put this into perspective. Uh, In the first place, you have to remember that in these countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia, there are very few oil companies. In Saudi Arabia, there's really only one. In the United States, we have over 9000 producers in this country and we don't live in a situation where one president uh, or, or one leader can say stop producing uh, American oil. So what you're seeing here is producers already responding to market demands based on some estimates you already are starting to see 25 to 30 percent of, of American oil go offline Uh, as a consequence of low energy prices. And we think that's the right way to handle this, is that the market should be dictating these solutions, not uh, doing it through some kind of government diktat.
0: How much more supply in the United States has to go offline though, in order for you as the American Petroleum Institute to say, guys, we've effectively done our fair share of cutting supply, now you guys have to turn off the taps.
5: Well, I don't, I don't know that anybody can answer that question. I mean, at the end of the day, this is really a demand problem. So usually on a given day before coronavirus, you had about 100 million barrels of oil used every single day in the world. Now we're down to probably about 80 million barrels being used in a, in a given day. That's a huge 20% decline in use, in demand, because people aren't flying, they're not driving, they're not going to work. And as a consequence of that, the real issue here is demand. And the only real solution to a demand problem is to get people back to work and get through the coronavirus issue.
0: I mean, you raise a great point there that, as we mentioned, there's two sides to this story and and demand is a, a critical one. Talk to me about the damage that's going to be wrought In the U.S. energy sector, you mentioned jobs. You mentioned businesses. If we're talking about twenty-five to thirty percent of capacity at this moment offline, how many businesses and jobs do we lose in this sector? Even if this extends only one, two, three months, Uh,
5: this is a tragedy for American oil and natural gas. Uh, You know, really, in the two thousand after the two thousand eight financial crisis. What you saw was an energy revolution that really helped get this country back on its feet. And the fact that the United States had become the number one producer of natural gas and oil in the world was a revolution for the world. And what you're seeing now is some producers like Saudi and Russia trying to take advantage of the situation of low demand and trying to drive these producers out of the market. We don't think that that is appropriate. And we're working with the president and the rest of our government to make sure that uh, producers aren't putting this kind of oil on the market when the world is not demanding it. What we're really concerned about, Julia, is a situation in which we're producing so much that there's no place to put it. Uh, World storage uh, is, is about to fill up. And that is a huge concern, not just for American producers, but it should be concerns for all producers. Because low prices ultimately are not good for Saudi Arabia. They're not good for Russia. Uh, And you're really going to hit a wall here on storage that could be very damaging, not just to the United States producers, but to world producers.
0: Mike, what's the solution here? Is it, and have you discussed this with with President Trump, bailouts for the oil industry, uh, trying to tackle Russia and the Saudis in some way? Because in my mind, no deal here supports prices without to our bigger point here, demand meeting the supply at this stage. What's the solution short term?
5: You you put your finger on it, that this is 80% a demand issue. uh, And that demand issue isn't going to be solved until the world economy gets back on its feet. So the solution here really is to get through coronavirus. In the meantime, uh, American producers will have access to the same Uh, facilities that are being set up by the Fed and the Department of the Treasury that every other business in America will have. So we need to make sure that uh, that access is there for those new facilities that are being set up. And American producers will participate in them if they need them. But we are not interested in some broad Uh, government bailout for the oil and gas industry. This is an industry that understands that uh, the free market is the way that uh, this this system has uh, made the United States the number one producer of natural gas and oil in the world. And Mm -hmm. we support that system. We're not interested in in specific government bailout for oil and gas. uh, And we're very concerned about some of the proposals that are out there that we think would do more harm than good. But we do appreciate the president's attention to this American made business.
0: Mike, keep in touch, please. We'll talk about this again because there's going to be no end of this conversation. So it's just the beginning. Mike Summers from the American Petroleum Institute. Great to have you with us. Thank you, sir. We're back after this with the opening bell on Monday's session. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. We're kicking off a shortened week of trading here in the United States. Markets will be closed for Good Friday observances too. But as expected, we've got a solidly higher open at this moment, bouncing back from last week's 2% declines. A better tone, you can sense it today as investors focus on some of the more encouraging COVID-19 data from countries like Italy, Spain and Germany. Also broader stimulus hopes, including here in the United States. But there are dark economic days to come as we keep mentioning JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon warning of a bad recession ahead with the kinds of financial stress seen during the financial crisis. Hmm. It's been 11 trading sessions since the market low set on March 23rd. Many still believe we have to retest those levels. That said, we've bounced more than 10% from those multi-year lows. We've also seen a lessening of market volatility too. The VIX index is down some 31% over the past five trading sessions. Context, though, is everything. The VIX is still up more than 200% this year. Claire Sebastian, joins us now, Claire. We're looking for areas where perhaps in the world they're coming out the other side, case numbers are stabilising, and then we'll look to to what restarting the economy looks like here. It's early days, but the markets do seem to be taking a, a sense of optimism, I think, from that.
6: Yeah, Julia. We've said this all along. This is much more about the case numbers, the yeah. data around that, than it is about any of the the macro forecasts or earnings that we're seeing. And the markets are reacting today to things like, you know, a slowing in the uh, the rate of new cases in Spain, the, the lowest death toll in Italy in two weeks, fewer ICU cases uh, there, and some some sort of very early but but somewhat encouraging numbers coming out of New York—a slight slowdown in, in the number of deaths, although it's far too early to tell uh, if that's a trend, according to the governor. But this is something that the markets are watching very, very closely. And that's why you're seeing this bounce today, although, of course, still uh, obviously trying to rebound from last week's 2% uh, falls. And this isn't just in stocks. We're seeing this in Treasury yields. They're down a little bit today. The VIX, as you say, is down at its lowest point in about a month, although still very high historically. That does imply that we're going to continue to see volatility uh, in the weeks ahead. Because, of course, the question remains in this environment, which is so unpredictable. I think another interesting phrase from Jamie Dimon's letter today was the fact, He called this dramatically different from the expected. Banks can stress test all they like. He said, but this is not what anyone had expected. And the question for investors remains, how do you assign value in this environment? I think that's why volatility is likely likely to still continue.
0: Yeah, there are no models for what we're seeing here. We've said it many times and we'll continue to say it. Claire Sebastian, thank you very much for that. Now, small businesses everywhere have been left financially devastated by the virus outbreak and the measures taken to suppress it. In the United States, it's hoped loans, which are convertible into grants forgiven, will start to be paid from the middle of this week. The $350 billion federal package is aimed at businesses with 500 employees or less, and that includes independent contractors and sole proprietors. The Banking Association predicts that 90% of the loans given will eventually be forgiven. Richard Hunt is president and CEO of the CBA, which represents major banks and credit unions, including the Big Four, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JPMorgan Chase and Citigroup. Richard, fantastic to have you on the show with us. What we got the sense of was that banks last week and credit unions were furiously trying to be prepared in order to process these loans where's been the biggest stress point and the, the holdup as far as you're concerned? Yeah.
7: Julia, thank you. And a very good morning to you and to your viewership. First of all, this is an unprecedented yes. increase in SBA <laughs> lending. To give you an example, the SBA usually processes 58,000 loans per year. Bank of America and several other banks have already received 100,000 applications. We're going to go from that 58,000 loans to probably 2 million loans. So A, one, it is sheer volume from the small business person who we understand. Uh, We're doing everything we can to get them back on their feet to help them through this crisis. Also, the SBA program itself inundated uh, from the banker side uh, trying to get these applications approved. So I will tell you this, Julia, our bankers worked 24-7 over this past weekend. I think you'll see a great amount of influx on, say, Wednesday, Thursday, into the accounts of small business people. Uh, we know we need to get these uh, small business people running up and running once again. We're going to do our part to get them going.
0: Richard, your data strikes with what I've heard, too. And I heard that the Bank of America alone did more than 99,000 loans on Friday to the tune of some $25 billion, which... You know, is getting the money out there clearly, or at least the promise of the money. The challenge that I heard was simply giving that data then to the Small Business Association to sign off on it is a is a manual process. And I know and you can tell me if this is true, whether they're working with Amazon Web Services to try and support that infrastructure. But that's going to take time, surely.
7: Yes, it will. Uh, That's why I think uh, it won't be until Wednesday or Thursday before we see a great amount of money dispersed directly to the small business uh, men and women who are the backbone of our economy. Uh, Look, this is unprecedented. It's unprecedented for small business, for the banking system, also for SBA and the Treasury Department. We're all working together, trying to get this money through the pipeline to the hands of everyday Americans who get up every single day trying to produce a good or service that we all can consume and to use. So look, it's a mighty mill effort. We're all on the same page trying to get it together. Uh, we had about a 90 minute heads up before all the rules were written. No more excuses. We're just trying to get this money out the, out the door.
0: One of the big fears, I think, for small businesses was the idea that this was first come, first served. Just based on what you're hearing from your members, Is there a risk of running out of money here? And do you want to hear from the Treasury, from Congress, that there will be and they can sign off on more money if it's required? 30 million businesses in the United States. Is the money enough?
7: We don't know yet for sure, but I can say without any certainty, and according to the United States Department of Treasury, the next two weeks we're going to have more than enough money. They did all the calculations before this program went live to take care of uh, all the small businesses especially when it looks at their payroll look it we're out of money uh, i am pretty confident oh we sh- so i think so we're, we're in very just, good shape yes. at least for the first 2 weeks uh, i'm very confident we will not run out of money
0: okay good richard we lost you for a moment there so i was getting ready to step in one of the other concerns and it goes to the point that I heard from you, which is you believe 90% of these loans will ultimately be forgiven, i.e. these loans are forgiven if 75% of the money is used in the first eight weeks for payroll purposes specifically. You know, I'm hearing anecdotally from small businesses that say, it's the cheapest loan I'll ever get in my life, and my workers are better off claiming unemployment benefits for the next four months than me paying them for two, given the uncertainty. Are your members worried about the same?
7: So every small business person must have a conversation with their employees, what is best for their family. Is it better to go ahead and use this money uh, from the small business standpoint for payroll? Is it better to pay the mortgage or the rent? I think that's conversations people just have to have. There are several different loans and programs that are out there, not just the payment protection program, but other loans as well.
0: And just finally here, There was a sense that the banks weren't ready for prime time, I think, this week. They've been working 24-7, I'm sure, over the weekend. Is the Small Business Association, by midweek, going to be fully up and running, able to deal with the applications that are coming in from your members as quickly as they can take the details from potential borrowers?
7: Well, look, I will say banks are primetime ready. Uh, Again, an unprecedented effort over the weekend, 24-7 to get this up and running. Uh, I think Small Business Administration, I'm hoping with the assistance of Amazon, they will be ready primetime for Wednesday or Thursday as well.
0: Fantastic. Richard, great to hear. Keep in touch, please. Let us know how progress goes. Richard Hunt, president and CEO of the Consumer Bankers Association. And stay safe, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, as millions of Americans lose their jobs every week, how can the country get back to work and avoid more economic damage than necessary? A potential plan for the future. Next. Welcome back to more First news special coverage of the coronavirus pandemic with more than 90% of Americans under stay-at-home orders. What might be the solution to get people safely back to work before the lockdown causes irreparable damage to the US economy and its individuals and workers? Professor Paul Romer is Nobel Laureate in Economics. Dr. Rajiv Shah is former head of the US Agency for International Development and the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. He led the US response to the Ebola crisis in West Africa. Gentlemen, fantastic to have you with us. Um, Dr. Shah, I I want to begin with you because you watched what happened in West Africa as a result of the Ebola crisis, the damage that it did to lives, to the economy, and you recognised that testing, two specific forms of testing, was critical. Explain what's needed in the US equivalent.
8: Sure. Well, thank you, Julia, for having me. And in Ebola in West Africa, what we learned was until we got the testing process down from taking about a week to go from a suspected positive to a confirmed positive, which was reported out and geolocated, down to about four, four hours, less than four hours. Until we achieved that, we were not able to mount an effective response. Once we did, we responded so swiftly and effectively that much of the other efforts, like building out treatment units for people who we expected to get Ebola went unused because a true data-driven evidence-based response allowed us to overcome that viral threat and allowed us to restart the West African economy, which had taken a one-third reduction in its economic activity, which was devastating to people. And I think we're seeing a very similar reality here in the United States. Uh, Paul has made important estimates about the effect of the lockdown on the economy. And the reality is this process is going to be with us for 12 to 18 months. So to have a safe functioning alternative to a total and complete lockdown, we need widespread testing. We need widespread testing with PCR so that everyone who has symptoms can know whether or not they have uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. And we need a serology test that is very, very broadly used so that people can know, do they have some immunity because they have certain types of antibodies in their system that would protect them from reinfection? And can they go to work? Can they be part of a massive frontline public health workforce that allows us to stay safe? Can they allow us to restart critical parts of the US economy? And right Right. now, unfortunately, we don't have that in place.
0: Dr. Shaw, I have so many questions about pieces, bits and pieces of that, but we'll come back to that because I want Professor Roma for you to come in here because I know you've just gauged in financial terms and it's back of envelope how much production damage is going on on a monthly basis and compare Thanks. that to perhaps the cost of just pumping money into the medical sector to produce the number of tests we require, whether it's do I have coronavirus right now or whether or not I've got the antibodies. Talk us through the maths here, please.
9: Yeah, um, my estimate right now is, is that we're losing about three to four hundred billion dollars each month in output we don't produce and in income that we don't earn. If we spent a hundred billion dollars in the next, you know, twelve months improving the quality of our tests innovating, scaling out the tests we already have we could recover much more quickly we might avoid that that 400 billion dollar loss each month and there's another cost of delay in recovery which is that we may not be able to recover to some of the things we used to do before the level we return to may be lower if we delay too long. so a faster recovery, would be enormously valuable. And the point to keep in mind here is that we can save lives through lockdown, we can save lives through testing and quarantining the people who test positive. The testing and quarantining system is just vastly less expensive and damaging than the lockdown approach.
0: Yes, and when we see in the space of two weeks 10 million people in the United States registering for unemployment benefits, the economic costs here are vast, even as we, we try to save lives. Dr Shah, the science here the initial criticism will be how do you know if you've got the antibodies how strong they are whether you can indeed go back to work and if you're talking about testing frontline workers like um, medical workers those that are working grocery stores that are very much on the front line don't you need almost like a 15-minute test that they can literally on their way into work be tested and how far away from those kind of um, scientific advances are we
8: well, I think you're exactly right. First, it's important to note that without a national testing strategy where every single American and every single person in any economy has access to both types of tests when they need it, we're stuck with only the option of an all-in lockdown to save lives and protect you know, the sanctity of human life for those who are vulnerable. So that's where we are today. If we made the kind of investment Paul is talking about, we could dramatically accelerate tests that were available, both for very rapid initial diagnostic testing, the PCR test, and for ser- uh, serology tests that could be accessible, but would need to be accessible at a, at a scale and in a cultural manner that has never been done before in yeah. the United States. And and frankly, it's exactly what you're talking about. Workers would need to have knowledge that they uh, are have the test readily available, that it only takes a few minutes, that in fact, it is correlated with uh, the actual outcome conferring some reasonable amount of immunity that allows them to be back in the workforce. And that would have to become a regular part of American economic activity until, until we have not only a good vaccine available, but broadly used in order to confer the kind of immunity we need. And, I, and one additional thought, imagine what's going to happen in August and September. We have seen already A bounce back of coronavirus in Singapore, a place where a lockdown did in fact work, and now they're on a second lockdown. The reality is, come August and September in the United States, we're going to have another flu season. And if people don't know the difference between common cold symptoms and COVID 19, it's going to once again confer. Uh, a massive amount of damage to the U.S. economy. We simply need a serious national strategy. It should be resourced as if we are at war because we are at war. And we should not accept losing hundreds of thousands of lives as a requirement to to restart the American economy. We can do better um, than that.
0: You're giving me goosebumps because it's about lives in terms of economic lives impacted and the health crisis here. And we have to be talking about this as one unit. Professor Romer, it's a call to action here. It needs strategic action at the top down level. We've just signed a stimulus bill in the United States for $2 trillion. Come in here, it shouldn't be so hard to sign up money and push it into the, the healthcare system to facilitate this.
9: Yeah, Yeah, I think both at the level of the decisions that they make in Washington and then the decisions everybody else makes, we need clarity about where we're going. And to pick up on on Raj's point about Singapore, we need a clear statement of a policy we can stick to for as long as it takes to get a vaccine or a cure. That could be 18 months, it could be longer. So we need a consistent policy we can stick to. Lockdown is not that kind of a policy, And if you're alternating between lockdown and then release, uh uh-oh, lockdown again, if people know that's what you're going to do, it creates uncertainty, which is just like like the acid that eats away at confidence and uh, the willingness to make investments to return to economic life. So we need a clear policy that we can stick to. And the one we've been describing, start testing everybody frequently, and then Tell the people who are positive, you have to go into uh, isolation. Let the others go back to work. This is the one we can stick to for as long as it takes.
0: A sustainable bridge to recovery. That's what we're talking about. And to a vaccine, ultimately, that that can save us. Gentlemen, fantastic to have you on the show. We will continue this conversation. It's a, a call to action, I think, for everybody, including top-down leadership. <laughs> Professor Paul Romer, Dr. Rajiv Shah. Fantastic to have you with us and stay safe. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Up next, a nationwide candlelit vigil. India counters the pandemic with a display of light. Welcome back first move. Millions of people in India held a nine-minute candlelit vigil on Sunday night to show a united front against the coronavirus outbreak. Across the country, people stood on balconies, entryways and outside their homes holding candles, lamps, flashlights and mobile phones. Prime Minister Narendra Modi had been urging people to hold the vigil as a show of solidarity against the darkness of the pandemic amid the country's shutdown. A light for the whole world, I think. Thank you for watching. Stay safe, everybody, please. And we'll see you tomorrow.